So I'm delighted to be speaking with Dr. Deepti Gurdasani, who is a senior lecturer in machine learning at Queen Mary University of London. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, you've had a really interesting career uh, over different continents and different subject areas. You completed your medical degree in Vellore in India and then an MPhil in epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of Cambridge, followed by a PhD in genetics. And more recently, you're a postdoc at the Wellcome Institute, where your studies focused on population history and migration across Africa. And you were the co-lead of the African Genome Variation Project. And now you work on predictive analytics of genomic and clinical data. So I've given a sort of whirlwind background of, of you, but I just wanted to hear in your own words, what brought you to your current role? Sure. So, you know, as you say, my background is in clinical medicine and I was very interested in infectious diseases when I trained. Um, it kind of led me to wanting to research factors associated with health and disease, particularly in, in more diverse populations, which is what led me into doing a master's in epidemiology at Cambridge. And from there into my PhD, which was focused on uh, developing design strategies to study genetics of uh, disease, particularly in ethnically diverse groups, because of an understanding that I developed early on that a lot of genomics research was focused on European populations. And a lot of the methods to study genetic determinants of disease were also based on European cohorts, which are very different from um, African cohorts and the design of studies uh, in the African context. And um, I wanted to sort of develop methods so that we could understand genetic determinants of disease better in more ethnically diverse populations. And that sort of led over time into wanting to study not just the genomics of disease, but also uh, the clinical, social, lifestyle, socioeconomic determinants of disease in a much broader context um, in uh, more diverse populations, which is what I do now. So my work right now focuses on studying real world data. So, you know, electronic health record data um, in hundreds of thousands of millions of individuals to try and understand uh, the geographic, spatial, environmental, socioeconomic, clinical and genomic factors that are associated with disease outcomes and try and build algorithms that help us manage patients uh, more precisely. Fantastic. So a really wide range of research. So just focusing on your work at the African Genome Variation Project, you mentioned that um, you know, your work is unique in that you used and collected data from ethnically diverse populations, which are, as you said, on the whole, generally underrepresented in genomics and machine learning research and clinical research in general. So this is a bit of a hard question, but I'm going to go for it. What do you think is needed for the equitable integration of, of this genomic knowledge into clinical practice? I think a lot, lot more research that represents uh, minority groups is the first place to start. So, for example, if we look at genomic research, uh, we know that more than 78% of research is currently in European populations. So uh, we have studies of millions of individuals of European ancestry. And by contrast, there's very little understood about genomics in African populations. And this is despite the fact that we know that Africa is the seat of genetic diversity where humans originated and that, you know, that genetic diversity holds 
much more opportunities to understand the genetic basis of disease than you know less diverse populations like European populations. So there has been a shift, and and that's been very good to see. And uh, over the last few years, uh, you know, there have been several fold increase in the number of individuals from more diverse ethnic groups that are being included in these studies. But we're very far from realizing, uh, you know, an equitable contribution of genomics and clinical research uh, into making better health disparities. We know that there are, you know, real differences uh, between the healthcare that's received by ethnic minority groups and uh, whites, uh, not just within the UK, the US, but in, in many parts of the world. And a lot of this is down to structural biases, structural racism, uh, stigmatization, discrimination, marginalization of groups. I mean, not all of this, all of it is because of biological or genetic differences. Most of it is actually social. And to deal with that, I mean, of course, uh, biological knowledge from genetics helps to an extent, but to actually deal with that, we need to improve the structural differences. And and unless we actually recognize those and work on those, you know, just improving research in this area in itself is not going to be a solution, although it is definitely a cog (laughs) in, in the part of the whole process. Yeah, that's so interesting that you say that. I mean, part of the history of genetics and genomics is uh, eugenics. And it's a very dark, dark period of scientific research. So it's really interesting to hear you say that really that part is not really the focus of, of anyone's research anymore. And it's more dealing with the structural sort of behavioral aspect. Well, I wouldn't say it's not the focus of research. Unfortunately, eugenics has survived into the present era and we still hear from very prominent voices like James Watson and uh, prominent voices that for example are doing genetic research into things like you know intellectual uh, ability across Mm -hmm. uh, races, income inequalities, uh, there's uh, genomic research into sexuality and all of these Mm -hmm. what all of these uh, things actually bring home is that eugenics is still very much part of uh, the current narrative, even though it's not explicitly so. And uh, that a lot of this research is again happening in silos. It's something that we see in machine learning as well, where scientists feel that, you know, we're just innocently looking at a research question. We are just scientists and it's not our responsibility to understand the ethical and social ramifications of where, what we're doing. And, um, you know, curbing what we're doing would be, would amount to, you know, not being able to do free research or, uh, you know, oppressing our free speech. Whereas many of us asking the question, you know, what is the purpose of this research? In what way are you trying to improve health or society with this research? Because, you know, my very strong view from the beginning has been that research and science doesn't exist in a vacuum. And as researchers, we have the responsibility not just to build algorithms and do science, but to understand the context in which we're doing it and understand what the ramifications of this are likely to be and work with those ramifications. And it's something you become aware of very early when you're doing population genetics research, because um, a lot of the research we do is very sensitive. So, for example, the African Genome Variation Project and the Uganda Genome Resource, you know, we are studying uh, populations with a background history, a a strong historical and political context. And, you know, when you describe things like genetic admixture, you know that a lot of that has arisen from social conflict, from, you know, genocide, from, you know, many complex 
forces that have impacted people in very, very real ways. And we cannot just present that research without having that context in mind. And it's something that our team always had in mind when we were working on the African Genomation Project or the Uganda Genome Resource because it wasn't helicopter science. It wasn't, you know, we got samples and we did this research. Those studies were built up locally within those universities in collaboration with us uh, right from the ground. I mean, the Uganda Genome Resource took a whole decade to set up uh, and deliver because it wasn't, you know, we take samples, we produce data, we <laughs> do the analysis and just mention some authors uh, from the local university. It wasn't like that at all. And when you do research like that, you know, we engage with communities uh, and tribal leaders right before we started the research, you become very aware of the social context. And I think that's very important for all researchers to do because research that's done in a silo can actually be quite dangerous. The fact that eugenics is still an active area of research is shocking. And I recall a controversial app which provided a score for your genetic predisposition of sexual orientation, which was based on a research paper in science. Can you comment on the use of and commercialization of genetic tools in this way and what problems they are causing and how to overcome them? Yeah, I mean, I really, really worry about things like that, because once again, the question is, you know, is the world going to be a better place having this tool in it? And what is this tool actually trying to do? Mm -hmm. You know, do we really need a tool where SNPs are telling us about our sexuality or about whether we like the taste of Marmite, <laughs> you know? Um, and, you know, it's not just genomics. I mean, you see this in, in machine learning as well, where uh, we know that, for example, as part of predictive policing and even as part of the home office, we have tools that, for example, tend to classify a person by their race or gender. And, you know, we know, for example, there are biases inherent in those tools, but out with even those biases, which I'm very happy to talk about, even if these tools are perfect in predicting these things, is it useful to predict these things or are they just uh, amplifying the biases that are already present in society against people of certain races, uh, people who are marginalized because of their sexuality? I think we really have to ask the question, what are we trying to achieve by commercializing these tools? Because in some ways it feels like we're just commercializing and amplifying uh, inequalities that already exist at the cost of the people who are already marginalized. Yeah, no, that's a very, very interesting point. And so you mentioned biases in data that are amplified in sort of machine learning algorithms, for example, that can be scaled up. What are the biggest challenges in using a tool like this, amplifying biases that exist in a data set? Um, and how do we overcome these uh, to reduce any kind of health disparity that we might see in the outcome? I think a lot of it is inherent to the data that we are using and what we're using it for. So the first thing to kind of remember is that artificial intelligence uh, is hugely powerful. It's also completely unaccountable in that it's a black box and very hard to understand how these algorithms work. And a lot of these algorithms are being trained by uh, bodies that already have a lot of power. So for example, they use for predictive policing, for example, you know, giving a score to a person's criminality based on their face and their histories. They're used for things like classifying race they're used to determine whether somebody belongs to a particular gang or not. And when they're trained, they're trained on 
systems that we know are already biased, you know. So we know, for example, policing is heavily biased against ethnic minorities. Uh, and the biases that exist in human classification are the same ones that are going to be reflected in artificial intelligence because, you know, artificial intelligence is not anything except what we're training it to be. And if we're training it based on human biases, it's going to reflect the same biases. The second thing is that, yes, can you reduce the level of bias? So people who do the predictive policing and classification of uh, people by race and sex have tried to do this. They've tried to make it as accurate for classification of, let's say, white males and black women. Uh, but even if you make this equitable, the big question is parity in an algorithm is not necessarily equal to social justice. So what are these algorithms going to be used for? And you really have to consider. Ultimately, you're going to give a risk score to somebody's criminality that's going to be presented in front of a judge. And we know that even uh, justice is biased against, uh, you know, uh, black people, people who come from certain minority backgrounds. And what are they going to do with the score? Is the score just the kind of farce that allows these biases to perpetuate and continue and is just, you know, introducing, tweaking the algorithm and bringing some parity into these algorithms sufficient? Mm -hmm. I think we need to think beyond that into what are these algorithms being used for? Are they actually concentrating power with systems that are already quite powerful and have little accountability? Mm -hmm. And how are you going to bring accountability into a system? How is a defendant in the system going to be able to challenge a tool that actually nobody understands uh, and prove that it may be biased against them. So I think there are lots of problems and it needs to be looked in a much broader social context. And not to mention that AI tools are concentrated very much with very few countries at this point of time because of the level of computation involved and the fact that, you know, talent is very much pulled into very few companies and countries. So, you know, there's the US, there's to some extent the UK, there's China and a few other countries in the world. And, you know, that in itself creates a huge amount of inequity. And the way the tools are being used so far is, is particularly worrying. I mean, for example, one of the ways that AI has been used is by ICE, uh, which is, you know, the, the US system for identifying illegal immigrants to decide on who should be deported. And once again, you know, how is that system going to be challenged? and uh, by those people who have very, very little power. And is it just that people are using the system to then put the responsibility on an algorithm nobody understands uh, and can challenge rather than uh, facing up to the huge discriminatory power inherent within the system? There's a lot of criticism in AI research uh, regarding the fact that data is limited and a lot of AI research is sort of done not with the question in mind, but with the availability of data. So, um, and you, you've sort of touched on this a bit that, you know, we really need to understand what the machine learning algorithm is set up to do. Um, so do you feel like this is a huge problem in the industry? I think the huge problem is that people have been seduced by the power of AI. You know, technically it is extremely powerful, it can do a lot of work. And a lot of people feel like, or oh, we can do so much with this, let's do it. And we are just engineers. It's not up to us to look at the social or ethical ramifications that we do. And I feel a lot of people in our industry tend to work within these silos. And I think companies that kind of promote the use of AI very much work in the let's work fast and break things, you know, yeah. rather than really thinking about the ramifications of what they're doing and engaging with the people who are going to be affected, which takes much, much more time. And it's a completely different way of thinking mm -hmm. that, you know, co companies that work for commercial gain are not really 
um, primed to think in that way. I, I think more recently we've seen an awareness of this in many corporate companies and a conversation start about this, which is encouraging. But at the same time, it's not the way many scientists or engineers uh, who work in tech think. They don't really think about the broader ramifications. As you say, it's very opportunistic based on the data that is available rather than where do we want to get? What we, do we want the world to look like? And how do we get there? It's more of, oh, we have this data. What is the fancy stuff we can do with this irrespective of what the ramifications of that mm -hmm. are going to be? And the fact is most of the data that are available in the countries that have access to AI is data that is heavily biased and heavily skewed. And it's not just heavily biased and skewed just in terms of representativeness in that, you know, obviously, you know, Europeans, whites are more represented in those data sets and ethnic minorities, but it's also uh, the biases that are inherent on those in those systems. For example, if you train an AI algorithm based on clinical decisions made by a medic, you know, we know that health decisions are biased based on whether they're treating women or ethnic minorities. And those biases are also amplified. So it's not just a question that can be fixed with representativeness. So even if you had loads of data on how ethnic minorities are treated, your algorithm might still be quite biased. Yeah, depending on the ground truth that they're, they're trained on. Yeah, of course. So I think I couldn't finish a conversation without talking about COVID, obviously. <laughs> I feel like nobody can. So I just wanted to ask about a few papers that you've been a co-author on. There are a couple of really interesting COVID-19 letters um, published in The Lancet Global Health and The Lancet on the dangerous fallacies of mathematical modeling and scientific evidence used guiding public policy. So can you tell us a little bit more about these and what you think we need for an effective public health policy for COVID-19 in the UK and beyond, especially for people who are disproportionately affected like ethnic minorities? The reason that, you know, I felt compelled to kind of write that piece was, again, because coming right from, you know, what we were talking about in machine learning, um, I felt that a lot of the government policies based on modeling also suffered from the same problems. People who were doing the modeling weren't really looking at the broader context of what they were doing the modeling in. The modeling very much seemed to be based on what the government policy could be rather than what it should be. Uh, for example, you know, very early models from Imperial, which were, I mean, algorithmically very, very sound, didn't, for example, uh, model things mm -hmm. like test, trace, and isolate, which data from several countries, even at the time, was telling us was crucial in controlling the pandemic. And I feel like we really lost time with that, that one. They seem to be modeling what they felt the government would be able to do within a short period of time, rather than the science being able to inform policy and telling the government what it needed to do. So that piece was very much written in frustration at the fact that the government abandoned very early on a test, trace, and isolate strategy, saying that we had moved beyond the containment stage, when in fact that policy was crucial to containment, as real data from many countries had shown. And I think my frustration was with the fact that once again, the modeling, which I felt was flawed because, you know, it, it, it made some really under optimistic assumptions about how long testing isolation would take, uh, seemed to trump the observed evidence we were getting from across the globe. So it felt very much that. Uh, you know, we were saying this strategy that we know has worked across the world is not going to work based on this particular model. And it was very much highlighting that we need to really consider real world evidence and modeling should be used to inform what we should be doing rather than uh, highlight the lack of strategy or policy that we have right now. Mm -hmm. 
And when you talk about real world evidence, what kind of data are you talking about here? So at that point in time, for example, there was overwhelming evidence from Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, uh, many different parts of Southeast Asia that essentially showed that countries were able to control the pandemic much better. And in, in most cases, actually, without even implementing lockdowns by very early development of case detection, contact tracing and isolation strategies in different forms, including quarantines at the border, of course. And, and many of those countries have a much, much lower death rate even today than we had. And they've managed to do this without a huge impact to their economies and without uh, a huge impact to their society because many of them were able to actually get away without prolonged lockdowns because they had the strategy in place very early on versus the UK where we abandoned the strategy very early on despite seeing how important it was from, from the global experience. So once again, it's not being able to look at the global experience and you know, believing models over actual observed evidence. Okay. And of course, the models that were flawed uh, as well. So I think uh, for me, that's a real lesson from the pandemic that you know we really need to look at success stories that are unfolding in front of us. In some ways, we were lucky because the pandemic in the UK arrived quite late compared to many other countries in, in East Asia. But instead of learning from that, we sort of developed a strategy almost of exceptionalism, where we felt that we could go down a completely different route and reject the strategies that had worked in other countries. And somehow that would be successful. And it's very clear about 60,000 deaths from COVID down that it hasn't been successful. That's a very good point. And um, just Quickly, last question. I'm sorry, you're very engaging. I can't, I can't keep asking questions. But um, you mentioned some of the countries that were had done test and trace very successfully: Taiwan, Singapore. Um, obviously, some of these programs were quite invasive on on people's privacy, tracking credit card transactions, and so on. How do you think that that these kinds of programs can be rolled out in a country like the UK? Yeah, I mean, I think it's challenging. There has to be a balance between um, privacy, you know, surveillance and being able to put in a robust public health response. I think the two things to consider. So there are countries that didn't use those models that have still been able to control COVID countries like New Zealand, for example, where, of course, lockdowns were then required to bring cases down to a level where um, a, a test race and isolate strategy would work. So it's not necessary that you need to have that amount of invasive surveillance to be able to control COVID in their countries. And in particular, Australia, we've also seen seen this, you, you know, you can still control COVID, although you might need more restrictions. So um, I think a lot of it is also about public trust. We know that there's a lot more public trust in politicians, for example, in South Korea. So, you know, there wasn't a huge amount of opposition to these strategies. The problem with the UK is that we don't have public trust in government. And actually, that's very legitimate because of the, the way public communication has been carried out and the way public money has been used during the COVID pandemic. Uh, and had had there been a lot more public trust in government, like there is, for example, in New Zealand, uh, people may be, may be more willing to accept uh, government use of data in at least for a short term basis to be able to control the pandemic, you know, but again, it is very important that there is public trust. And uh, right now, most people don't trust the government with this. Also, you know, if you look at the digital contract tracing app that the government was trying to create, in terms of privacy law, it was actually a bit of a disaster. The one that's in place now isn't because they had to do a U-turn on that. But the fact that the government has been trying to harvest 
large amounts of data for long periods of time and has a history of doing this, particularly with leave EU doesn't build a lot of confidence in the way that they would use public data. So I as an individual don't feel wouldn't feel comfortable with my data being available with them, which is saying a lot, despite understanding how much a pandemic needs this response. So I think a lot of it is down to government failure in this respect. On that positive note. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's been a very cynical. <laughs> it's been a really enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much for, for all your time and joining me. For-